Welcome to Flashback, a podcast by the Okaloosa County Public Information Office. Get ready to dust the nostalgia off your sleeve as we talk with Okaloosa citizens who share with us how things used to be. I'm your host, Nick Tomacek. It's time to step into your imaginary DeLorean, tap your flux capacitor, and flashback. Welcome to another episode of Flashback. The enormous presence of our military community is undeniable here in Northwest Florida. Eglin Air Force Base, the largest installation in the world, and it's being used by every branch of the military, of course, including the Air Force. Like a lot of large things, there are little pockets or sections that specialize in certain things. That's certainly the case with Hurlburt Field. This little pocket of Eglin is located near the Santa Rosa Sound in the south end of Okaloosa County, and it's the subject of today's flashback episode. General Grandison Gardner, who was an Eglin commander, named Hurlburt Field for First Lieutenant Donald Wilson Hurlburt, who was killed in an aircraft crash at what was then known as Eglin Auxiliary Field No. 9, and that was in 1943. People living near Hurlburt will hear a constant hum, usually of a C-130 on the runway, and you'll see smaller U-28 propeller aircraft and CV-22 Ospreys on a lot of days if you're chilling at the beach in that area. They also have an impressive air park with retired aircraft for those wanting to reminisce about the glory days of that aircraft or for general museum enthusiasts. Hurlburt also has its own golf course, Gator Lakes. It's aptly named. You can actually find gators sunning themselves in various parts on the course and on the installation from time to time. Probably the most notable thing about Hurlburt is that it's home of AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command. AFSOC Jobs include combat controllers, pararescue men, special reconnaissance and tactical air control party, and a lot of other specialized fields. So in other words, these folks are the elite branch of the Air Force. Uh, the Navy has SEALs, Army has Green Berets, and Marines have MARSOC and their Marine Raiders. The Air Force has AFSOC and the Air Commandos. Being elite means you have to be trained, and I mean really trained. This training is why you'll sometimes see the motto, any place, anytime, anywhere, listed on literature or other signage related to Hurlburt and AFSOC. Listen to this piece of promotional material I found from the Air Force that'll help you get an idea of some of the intensity of the profession of some of these airmen. When you leave this course, you will bear the title of Air Commando, but you will never truly own it. You will continue to earn that distinction every day you put the uniform on. This uniform carries an unspoken promise. If you fall, I will pick you up. If you are taken, I'm coming for you. If someone tries to harm my teammates, you gotta get through me! That is what it means to be a commando. It means that if you fall into hell, this is the hand that's gonna pull you out. It is a statement to the world. You are an elite. You stand in a higher circle. You will be held to a higher standard. We do not accept ordinary. We do not accept common. That is for someone else. You are AFSOC. My personal experience with Hurlburt Field is a patriotic one and definitely has some influence on why I chose to do this episode. I am formerly a photojournalist for a local newspaper, and during the height of the Iraq-Afghanistan wars, AFSOC sent a lot of airmen from Hurlburt to the Mideast. These airmen would come home from deployments on passenger aircraft and walk from the plane about 150 yards to a hangar where families and loved ones would wait anxiously, holding signs that read, Welcome home, and I missed you. I also saw a couple marriage proposals. 
It's hard not to get a little misty while watching a kid hug his mom or dad after being away from them for months at a time. Every American should witness something like this at least once, I think. So, having such an elite group of people in Okaloosa County has certainly had an impact on those of us who call this place our home. There is, of course, the economic impact of having so many thousands of people living here, but I wanted to get to the part about how these well-trained men and women impact the character of our county and the influence of their leadership for us. To do this, I needed to find out, one, the origin story of Hurlburt and Afsok, and secondly, I wanted to hear from people who have experienced this kind of leadership firsthand, day to day, to hear their perspective on these stories. I reached out to Hurlburt Fields Public Affairs Office and they put me in touch with one of their staff historians, Todd Schroeder. Uh, another rumor that's kind of floated around over the years is that possibly the Doodle Raiders uh, use Hurlburt as one of its uh, locations for training. Uh, that, it, while it would have been nice to have been true, was not because Hurlburt the basic construction of Holbert, where it could have even been used as an airfield, did not occur until after the raid had taken place. Uh, they would have trained more at other locations, including Duke Field. During World War II, it was used more as a radar training site and countermeasures for radar operators. After the war, they had some units come in and out, but not for very long. Bombardment units, they have done some testing down here. We had an anti-aircraft Missiles squadron down here at one time. Uh, they did some test firing of early cruise missiles from here. And it really became synonymous with, with special operations in 1961 when uh, President Kennedy wanted to set up unconventional warfare units to get away from the big stick of uh, nuclear deterrence. He realized there was a broader range of uh, mission sets out there that could be used. And so that's kind of when it really got its its taste of AFSOC. And in, probably by, by 1962, it was predominantly AFSOC. And by the mid-1970s, anything that wasn't AFSOC, except for maybe, a, well, pre-AFSOC air commandos, except for some very small tenant units, had vacated Holbert Field. And we've been, it's been the home of special operations for Probably a little over 50 years now, 55 mm. years in one sort or another. And officially, AFSOC came here when it stood up in 1991. Before that, was 23rd Air Force in about 1990. So it's been the home of special Air Force Special Operations for a long time. You know, the Navy and the Army, the Army to a certain degree has its own air support via means of helicopters. But what we do is we provide... Uh, like with the AC-130s, the armed overwatch of the ground forces when they're out doing missions. We have the long-range VRMC-130s where we can take them and fly them from the United States over to where they need to go, whereas helicopters, they could get there, but it would take a long time to get there. We can get them there faster. We can carry more people. So we are dedicated to supporting ground forces. We work uh, in unity combined uh, to complete the mission. I asked Todd about the evolution of the gunships. You know, the C-130s with giant guns hanging out of the side of them. I've heard that when some of the munitions and firing takes place, the kickback pushes the plant around a bit in the sky, which sounds pretty intense to me. Well, my understanding is there were some American missionaries 
down in Brazil, out remote in the jungle, and how they would get resupplied with her mail if the plane would come over, uh, kind of let a rope or a cable down, and the plane would be flying in a circle. They would hook to hook the cable to was in the center, so the people on the ground would hook up the cable. The plane would kind of go out where they, they were keeping the cable fairly tight, but not tight enough for they're going to break it. And they would slide down mail and other supplies they would need, and then they would unhook the cable. They'd pull it back up, and the plane would fly away. Somebody saw that, said, "You know what? If we mounted sideways, sideways firing guns." on a plane, we could probably do the same thing, hmm. go into a circle and concentrate our fire at a center point on the ground. And a lot of people, again, as I, I related, I thought if you got this, were naysayers saying, well, can you fire a gun sideways out of a plane? How do you do, you know, how do you sight the gun in and things like that? They, they just... They thought there was just too many unknowns to overcome, and people were saying, we at least got to try it, and they didn't even want to try it. They had to fight for everything they got to make the tech successful. And once they started using it, people couldn't get enough of it. And like I say, after that, it just took off. And, you know, in FSOC, I think you, you have, we have a good number of people that are, that are innovative, uh, as we said in a video production we did about three or four years ago, we just don't think outside the box. We draw a box when none exists, and then we think outside of that. Uh, I, I want to go back to when the air commandos first stood up in World War II, even, and I think this kind of applies, is uh, when they were looking for volunteers, they were looking for individuals that were described as quiet with self-assured arrogance and having great enthusiasm with an overwhelming eagerness to accomplish the mission. Hmm. So these were people that might have unique characteristics that some others didn't, and I think that carries on to this day. Some people are drawn to the mission. I would say that's more in special tactics. Uh, some of our air crew members, when they're done with their basic crew training, pilot training, things like that, want to come do the mission. AFSOC still is about 1% to 2% of the total Air Force. So we're a very small command uh, compared to the rest of the Air Force. In Vietnam, it was pretty much the same thing. Air Commandos, which eventually became AFSOC, were about 2% of the total Air Force. But to put it in perspective, the, of the 14 Medal of Honors earned by Air Force people during that conflict because of actions they took, five were earned by air commanders. So a very small percentage of the total air force, but a little over a third of the air force, uh, or I should say Medal of Honor is earned by air force personnel. So I think it speaks to the character of the people that are air commandos in an AFSOC. I asked Todd also to explain the slogan, any place, anytime, anywhere, and where that came from. That. That term actually came about from the first air commando group in World War II. Uh, the reason the air commandos stood up is uh, there was a British general, Lord Ord Wingate, who operated in the Burma theater. 
And he did unconventional warfare by taking his troops behind enemy lines. Well, the thing is, they had to walk in, they had to walk out. If they got injured and couldn't proceed, it was basically what was relayed to me is they had their weapon and they were told there, if the Japanese come to you, do whatever you think is necessary. And so, of course, their morale at times wasn't all that great. And they came up with an idea, and they pitched to uh, General Arnold, who was chief of the Army Air Forces, and he liked the idea. And so he formed the first Air Commandos group who worked with Lord, you know, Lord Wingate, and they would actually fly their people behind enemy's lines. Uh, they could go in flight planes and pick up their injured. So morale vastly improved. Well, they were flying... Wingate to a new location, or, or they were just flying them in one of our aircraft. Well, the aircraft crashed and killed Wingate. Mm-hmm. And the leaders of the first air commando group, uh, Colonel Cochran and Colonel Allison, were afraid that the Brits would lose faith in them. Yeah. So they sent a letter of apology, and the Brits wrote back say, don't worry, we would fly with you guys any place, any time, anywhere. And that's where that thing came from. It's like, we have complete confidence in you guys, and we would go, like they say, any place, any time, anywhere with you. And so that's how that, that phrase came about, and it's kind of become an air commando phrase, you know, any place, any time, anywhere. We're ready to go. We're going to adapt as we have to. Uh, if we have to make changes, we'll make changes very quick, uh, you know, on the fly to make sure we get that mission done. When I was first assigned to AFSOC in 1992, their unofficial motto was a step ahead into changing world. So in other words, we're going to have to continually evolve and sometimes revolutionize the way we do business so we can stay relevant and mean we're going to be able to accomplish our mission. And again, that gets back to innovation, eagerness to get the the mission done, having a little bit of a self-assured arrogance. In other words, yeah, we can, you can say that's what the rules are. We think we can do more than the rules. That's not saying we break the rules, but we look at them and say, we think we can do things better, and here's how we think we can do them better. Yeah. I like that self-assured arrogance. That's pretty good. Todd is currently a civilian employee with AFSOC, but uh, he had served in the Air Force as an enlisted historian serving all over the world, but was happy when he had a chance to come back to work at AFSOC at Hurlburt. He has now been there in his capacity as a historian for 11 years. When I had the chance to come back to AFSOC, I had it because I just love the mission. I love the people. It's, I mean, it's, it's a great place to work. It's a great command to be in. I just absolutely love it. I also talked with another gentleman historian with Hurlburt AFSOC Connections, Herb Mason. He worked at AFSOC for 30 years and remembers a lot of details of his time there. One of the things you'll notice in all these people work there, they're, they don't um, show it, but basically they're all A-types. And what I mean by that is... Um, they, you give them a task to do and they'll figure out a way to do it. And uh, I was at a uh, briefing and uh, we had first, when we first went into um, 
uh, the, the Gulf War. And uh, we had uh, Secretary of the Air Force was visiting, and he had three young airmen. Uh, they were briefing him on using the different weapons over there. And he asked them, he said, well, you can't go out onto the range and use these weapons. Uh, you can't practice uh, doing this stuff. Where do you learn how to do it? And they said, we go over to Eglin. That's where all the engineers are. They have all the equipment, and we see what they got. And he said, wow. He said, that's really interesting. So I thought that was an interesting tour. These young airmen were three and four stripers, the mm -hmm. forward air controllers, the guys like that, that they find innovative ways to do things. Uh, the second one I remember, uh, very telling, uh, you mentioned gunships. And, they, of course, they make a, a left-hand turn yeah. if they're going to be in combat. And a uh, special tactics group was on the ground, and they were in a firefight, and they said, uh, called in and said, we need a gunship. And they said, there's none available. So the combat controller said, you got a regular C-130. And that's what the gunship's based on. It looks like it. And uh, the guy said, well, yeah, we have one passing over. He said, tell them to come down to this altitude, which a gunship would do, and make that left-hand turn. He said, the bad guys know what that is. Yeah. And so the guy said, okay. And the pilot did what he said, and the bad guys disappeared because they understood that? what was yeah. there. So again, this is the kind of people that are they're creative. They come up with things that, where would, where would you learn to do that? What would you make you think somebody wouldn't recognize? But uh, at the time, uh, the bad guys called the gunship the Spitting Witch. Oh, uh, okay. And Viet Vietnam, it was Puff the Magic Dragon. Hmm. So each each conflict, they find different ways to do different different things. Yeah, sounds like uh, those gunships are feared worldwide if you're our enemy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they uh the uh their uh the original gunship they came up with um uh, uh the first one was known as Spooky. Yeah. And they all until the last variant all were Stinger, Shadow, Spooky, whatever. And they landed uh was a uh, um uh, uh, AC-47, they had worked with it here and at Wright-Patterson in Ohio, and they took it to try it out into Vietnam, and they landed at Tan Sanut. So when they landed, the guy in the control tower said, hey, which, what's your call sign? And they said, well, we just got here. We don't have a call sign. And in the background, they heard somebody say, anything that old and slow is spooky. So that's how they came up with the very front first. Uh, it was uh, they called the very first one spooky. And at the air park in Earlbert, that's what's on the side of the gunship. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that that's not an original gunship. That they made it look like a gun. We did not bring any of the AC forty seven some from Vietnam. We left them for the Vietnamese to use. Oh. Okay. So, Herb went on to talk about how the military members who retire here contribute by volunteering at various food banks, as well as being involved in organizations that help veterans and active duty service members. But he also went on to describe a few specific instances of what you might call doing a good deed. A couple was getting married, and um, they had something like four or $5,000 with them, and they had to stop. And the guy got something out, and he left his wild on top of his car. And out it was off uh, Martin Luther King. And on that curve there, apparently, uh, when he left the 
he didn't realize he left it. It slid off. And uh, I guess it was late at night. And he didn't realize it didn't have any idea where he lost it. Well, the next morning going to work, uh, one of the special, uh, one of the military, I don't know if special tactics, but um, he saw he saw this thing along the road and it said, well, it looked like a nice wallet. And he got it, found out who the guy was and returned every penny of it to him. Yeah. So I always thought that was, but that made the newspaper. I remember that. Returning thousands of dollars back to the rightful owner is definitely a good deed. Here's another one, and in this case, it leads to a life saved. Let's listen to Herb. It was on a Saturday morning. Uh, the uh, filling station out the back gate at Herbert. Uh, I pulled in to get gas, and uh, next to me was uh, a special tactics guy in uniform. And he and his wife, and she was pregnant. And uh, some bicyclists, about five or six of them in a row, were going down the right-hand side by the filling station in line like you're supposed to, not bunched up. And shortly after they passed us, a truck came by weaving all over the place and basically ran over, knocked some of them off. But the front bike knocked the guy off and he was under the trunk, uh, under the truck. And they had water in the ditch there. And people started moving forward. This young man hollered to his wife to get his bag out. And he put the gas up and she gets his bag out. He reaches in, gets a smaller bag and he goes racing up uh, to the front. Now, what I did was cars were still coming down there. It was light. I kept, I got in the road to make cars go to the outside so no one else would get hit. And the police showed up pretty quick. And, uh, but before the police came, he came back down and uh, got back in his car and they left. And another person who ran up there with him, I said, what happened? And he said, well, the guy is injured and he took care of him. He got his head up out of the water and they got him out from under the truck and did little triage on him. And uh, he said, do you know who he is? And I said, no, uh, I really don't. But I know he's military because of the uniform. Well, when the policeman came, they asked me to stay there, interviewed me afterwards. And they wanted to know who it was. And I mm-hmm. said, well, I don't know who it was. I said, but I can give you the unit he belonged to. I gave him one of my cards. And I said, uh, I can give you the unit he belongs to. And I'll get you a number and give him a call which I did, and they were able to track a young man down uh, and recognize him for what he did for the community. But uh, he, he didn't think anything about it. He went and did it, got back in the car, and they drove off. And huh. that's probably the best to simplify uh, what, uh, what the airmen, male and female, uh, do around the community. They just uh, do what needs to be done and don't particularly need any recognition. So uh, I think it's pretty significant. I used to get asked by many people, well, we don't read about the Air Force in these operations, the special, the special ones. Mm-hmm. You read about the SEALs and the Rangers and Delta, and you read about the British SAS Special Air Service. And I came up with an answer for them. I said, okay, when you see these guys going and doing their thing, just think about how they got there. <laughs> And I said, the Air Force just has not done that. Having worked there 30 years, um, I remember one uh, uh, funny story. um, um, The guy with the ponytails, Seagull, is that? Oh, Steven Seagull, yeah. Yeah, he he came here. Steven Seagull is a martial arts movie star that practiced the martial art known as Aikido. He made his biggest appearance to the world in the film Above the Law in 1988. A more recent movie was Under Siege, 
in all these movies, he basically kicked the crap out of the bad guys in each one. But he hasn't started anything big in recent years, but was definitely pretty big back in the late 80s and 90s for sure. He also starred in 2009 in a reality show where he was a deputy from the sheriff's office in a parish in Louisiana. He has a bit of notoriety on various subjects if you want to see what pops up on your Google search. Anyway, let's finish Herb's story. And um, he came and everybody was so excited. He was going to do something, a movie, but he wanted to do some training. So the guy that was his escort was a friend of mine. We played soccer together. And he said, yeah, he's going to be over in the headquarters. So if you've been into the headquarters, there's a balcony there, second floor, and you can look down. Well, Steven Seagal there and his long hair and he, uh, you know, and there were several uh, a young lady and an older woman in front of me, and they were going on about him being a hero. He's a real hero. And I said, ladies, I said, he isn't a hero. He's a movie star. And I pointed out two gentlemen. One was, a, one was an airman. One was a sergeant. And I said, and she said, well, I work with him. And I said, did you know he did such and such and such? Well, no. And the other lady said, you know, your guy did such and such and such. He was on this. Well, no, I did not know that. And I said, they are heroes, <laughs> yeah. not Steven Seagal. But the rest of the story, when I asked the guy, how did he do? He said, the hand-to-hand -hand stuff, it was no one better than him. He said, but he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn door <laughs> when he went to the rifle range. So <laughs> I thought that was a, a, an interesting story. That's a good one. So, so when I got here in 91, I, was, I just happened to look it up. I think we've had 13 commanders of AFSOC, and I've worked for 11 I worked for 11 of them the last two. That would be about right. That's about six years since I retired. Who's your favorite? No, I'm just kidding. You know. <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, what was what was what was really unique for me is like growing up with uh, leadership. Um, they were young captains, many of them, uh, or lieutenant colonels or majors. Yeah. Uh, that. Uh, uh, that eventually became commanders. So I got to work with them in a variety of uh, jobs. And uh, you, you bring another uh, interesting story. Uh, he never told this story. I'm, I'm, I'm walking because I just had the book out, and I was looking at the uh, commanders I'd worked for. Yeah. And the one that hired me, um, one of the brightest guys I'd ever met and worked with, I, I, he left fairly soon after I got there, but he gave me an opportunity, but he, years, uh, we, we had gone to, um, San Antonio. We went to a Spurs game as a group after, after a meeting and, uh, um, Tom, Tom Eggers and Tom left and he went down to become the vice commander, I think at USOCOM down in Tampa. But before that, we were at the, uh, I was getting to know him. And so uh, we were um, at the ball game, and he got to telling me that uh, that the Air Force wasn't real big on setting up special operations. Well, none of the services were big on it. And his mentor told him that he shouldn't take the job of the ASOC commander. It was a numbered Air Force. And Tom told me, he said, uh, uh, and he said, he said, I, I probably hurt my career a little bit. And I just thought it was an interesting story. Huh. And he's, I said, why was that? He said, he told me the Air Force wasn't real big 
And I said, but why'd you do it then, sir? He said, because it was the right thing to do. I see. And uh, that, that summed it up for me. Like uh, Lieutenant General File I worked for, when he when uh, uh, Edgars was here, he was a captain. He was an aide. Okay. So I met him, yeah. and he became the fifth commander. So it was like growing up with your corporate board. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so having that relationship and they were they, – the quote I like to use for special operators, and I used to do a two-hour briefing. I did not come up with it. I heard it, read it, but I can never find out <laughs> where. I started my briefing about what we do is history makes you smart, heritage makes you proud. Yeah. And if I had to have a saying from my world about special, special operations, that would be it. I love how Herb's able to remember all these little stories, and I'm sure if I kept him on the phone longer, he could have gone on for, for hours more. I'd like to give a shout out to our local military service members, veterans, and their family members. None of us are perfect, and this episode isn't out to say that every member of the military is an angel, because none of us are. But what I want to recognize is their service to their country in this community in Northwest Florida in beautiful Okaloosa County. You serve and have served, and that usually involves sacrifice. Sacrifice of your personal freedom for the public good, sacrificing time experience with your family and sacrificing yes even your body and I don't want that sacrifice to be forgotten. I'd like to thank historians Todd Schroeder and Herb Mason and Hurlburt Public Affairs members Captain Jansen Float, Second Lieutenant Jason Barkey and the rest of the PA team there and special thanks to Vicki Stever the coordinator for the Okaloosa County Public Library Cooperative. She put me in touch with Mr. Herb Mason this episode was written and edited by me. Our executive producer is April Sarver, the Okaloosa County Public Information Officer. Music is by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. That's it for today. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Podbean so you can get the episodes as soon as they come out. If you have an idea for an episode, you can email me at ocpio at myokaloosa.com. I'm Nick Tomachek, and I'll see you around town.